0: Welcome to PharmaTalk Radio. I'm Kate Woda. I'm delighted to share a panel discussion from the 2019 Patients as Partners U.S. Conference on the topic of FDA patient engagement synergistic efforts. This FDA multi-center panel focuses on patient engagement and regulatory decision making. Leading the session is Anandita Saha from the Center for Devices and Radiological Health, or CEDAR, at the FDA. She is joined by colleagues Dr. Michelle Tarver, also from CDRH, along with Megan Moncourt from the Center for Biologics Evaluation and Research, known as CBER, and Pujita Fadja from the Center for Drug Evaluation and Research, also known as CEDAR. I hope you enjoy the podcast.
1: Good morning, everyone. I'm Annie Saheim uh, from the Center for Devices and Radiological Health, and uh, we're excited to be here to talk about um, our synergistic efforts that we're doing across uh, the agency. And, you know, overall, we are very collaborative and working together, and we'll walk through um, some of those efforts. And also recognizing that there are some things that we do do differently, part mostly because of statutory requirements and um, different aspects of how we have to regulate and be within the bounds of the law. So our plan for this session is I'll have each of Um, My panelists uh, discuss briefly some of the efforts within their various centers as well as how we're working together. I have a canned list of questions, but I really am hoping that you all will really, I imagine, will have lots of questions. And so really after they speak, we're going to open it up and I could keep going or you all can ask questions yourselves. So with that, I'll turn it over to our first panel. Uh, panelist, Megan Moncor. Megan is in uh, FDA Center for Biologic Evaluation Research and um, is part of the Science of Patient Input team in uh, CBER.
0: Good morning. Um, First of all, I just want to say what a tremendous experience this has been. So this is my first time attending this meeting, and I have have just been so impressed. Um, And also just to thank you uh, for inviting us. We really appreciate being being part of this kind of a forum. So a couple things that I'm going to talk about today, I'm going to talk just a little bit about CBER and what it is that we regulate, um, how CBER is bringing the patient voice um, into um, our reviews, um, also some of our initiatives, our patient-focused initiatives, and then a little bit on how we are all working together. Um, And I'll also just quickly touch on these uh, contacts that we have posted up here. Um, So to begin with, I I have a feeling that most people in this room know a little bit about what what CBER regulates, but we have a very broad um, product um, profile. So we we regulate allergenics, we regulate vaccines, uh, we also regulate blood and blood products and advanced therapies like gene therapy, cell therapy, tissue therapy. Um, Some of the ways that patients, um, patient groups, caregivers can share their experience and knowledge with us uh, are through um, things like patient listening sessions, which I know that you just just mentioned. So uh, we have an agreement with NORD. the National Organization of um, Rare Disorders, and they help us organize uh, listening sessions. A lot of times those are requested by our review staff. So for example, we recently had one with hemophilia patients understanding their views on gene therapy and participation in clinical trials. Uh, We also have um, hear from patients and patient-focused drug development meetings. And, and you heard a lot about that from um, Pujita. those 24 disease-specific uh, meetings that she was talking about. So so that is an opportunity for uh, patient, for us to hear about from patients um, and sort of how we uh, in CBER use that information. And this is not unique to CBER, but just as Pugita pointed out, it is part of our... Uh, of our clinical reviews, so it informs the clinical context for our drugs, Um, our drug review, our biologic reviews. Um, It also, um, we use it as the basis for some of our research projects, so we use the output from those meetings. Um, And so switching over to some of our patient-focused initiatives, so we have, uh, like like we've heard many of the speakers say, we have a, a cross-discipline um, forum in CBER, so it's the patient engagement workgroup, and that includes representatives from our clinical review team, our policy team, our communications outreach team, our, our business team, um, to talk about what's going on not only across the agency with patient engagement, but within our center. Um, We also have a rare disease coordinating committee that is focused on uh, advancing uh, development of of therapies for rare diseases and engaging patients in the rare disease area. And uh, finally, we have um, the Science of Patient Input Initiative, and that's where most of what I do falls under. And what that is is we're looking to advance and translate the science of patient input. And by that, we mean um, using rigorous, um, scientifically rigorous methods, like patient-reported outcomes, patient preferences, to capture the patient perspective, and then being able to pull that information into our regulatory decision-making and reviews. So for example, a recent project that I just worked on Um, was leveraging two existing resources that we have. The first one is uh, electronic healthcare data, um, like claims data, um, EHR data, that uh, FDA um, uses to monitor drug safety in the post-marketing environment. So that's the first resource, and the second is a mobile app platform that was developed by FDA um, with a, a P.CORI grant. And what we wanted to do was to be able to use those electronic healthcare data to identify a patient cohort to be able to follow longitudinally. Um, and this was just a feasibility project, but um, so why why would we want to do that? Well part of the reason is is to answer the question that I've heard come up several times. Um, during this meeting. So you've got the patient perspective, but is it representative? Is it, does it capture the diversity, not only of the, the clinical condition, but the demographics? Um, and also, um, to be able to use that mobile app to, to collect patient-reported outcomes and patient preferences. So if we have this, this longitudinal um, cohort we can start to look at things like how do preferences differ not only across patients but uh, within a patient or so often we are capturing preferences for an emerging therapy or a hypothetical therapy. So what do preferences look like before they try the therapy and then perhaps we can look at what they look like after. So, So those are some of the things that um, we were interested in exploring. Um, so jumping into how we all work together, um, so kind of second to being able to work so closely with patients is being able to work so closely with our colleagues in the other centers. I mean, this is truly a silo-free zone. Um, it is um, really amazing. So a lot of what you saw Pugeta outline there about the guidances, these different meetings, um, develop drug development tools. The, we are all working together. Um, and, and, and I will be talking about in a minute some of the ways that you all can contact CBER. But just at the end of the day, if you're contacting another center, we ultimately are going to hear about it because we are in very close contact. Um, and, and working together. So with that, I just wanted to just point out a couple of things, um, the Seber points of contact. So um, patient groups, caregivers, patients, if you want to request a meeting with Seber, you can email this, um, this, this contact here. Um, if you're interested in doing a patient preference study, We have um, somebody that you can contact directly, Martin Ho, and that's his email address. And uh, the last two, uh, the last two contacts there, so these are, again, this is another example of how we're collaborating, um, but it's also, um, these are opportunities for stakeholders to collaborate. So the first one are these, EL-PFDD meetings, so you heard about the PF um, patient-focused drug development meetings that FDA organized. Well, the EL, or the externally-led patient-focused drug development meetings, are are organized by um, patient organizations or groups of patient organizations. Um, And if you're interested in that, then you can access this this website, um, which is a CDER website, but you can propose something through there. Um, And then the last one, um, the COA Qualification Program Submission Resources. So COA, um, Clinical Outcome Assessment, so you heard um, Pujita talking about that with uh, the the grant. This is a little bit different. This is... uh, Drug development tool qualification and COAs are just one of three types of, of drug development tools. But if you want, if you're interested in um, doing that, this is the place for you to start. So.
1: Thanks, Megan. Um, next, we'll have uh, Michelle Tarver from uh, the Center for Dices and Radiological Health. She's the director of the Patient Science Engagement Program.
2: So, good morning. It's been truly a pleasure hearing about your experiences integrating with. Uh, clinical trials, and hopefully we can figure out ways that we can move together collaboratively in the future. So the Center for Devices and Radiological Health is committed to ensuring that patients have access to safe and effective medical devices, which include digital health technologies first in the world. By that, we're talking about diagnostics as well as therapeutic medical devices. Our center's mission and vision center around the patient. They're at the heart of what we do. And in fact, in 2016, our strategic priority focused on how we can partner with patients so we can help facilitate innovation in medical devices. As part of that priority, 96% of our staff engage with patients. And they found that it was critical to helping them make informed decisions in regulatory uh, efforts. We also had encourage our industry members to integrate patient-reported outcome measures in their evaluation of medical devices. And what we found is that 75% of our investigational device exemptions, which is the way that you study an investigational device in the United States, had a PRO measure. We also encourage the use of patient preference information, and you heard a little bit about that from Megan. But patient preference information is the way that we understand how patients weigh the benefits of a medical uh, product, with the risks and how do they make that trade-off? And so when we first started, there were no patient preference studies. Now we have 15 that are either in the pipeline or have been used to inform the labeling of a medical device or change a medical device. So we're really committed to ensuring this information is integrated into our daily business. So much so that we've established the Patient Science and Engagement Program. And as part of that program, we are charged with fostering the integration of patient perspective in the medical device development, evaluation, and surveillance. Some of the efforts that we've done in terms of fostering engagement at our center started with the Patient Engagement Advisory Committee. Um, I don't know if any of you have heard of it, but the Patient Engagement Advisory Committee is the only one like it at FDA. It is an advisory committee comprised solely of patients, caregivers, and patient advocates, and in fact, Sue Schrant is one of our members. That meeting we had in 2017 focused on patient engagement in clinical trials. And we talked about how can we have patients involved in the design of trials, the conduct of trials, and the communication of trial results. The recommendations that that committee gave us has led to us being committed to making a guidance that clarifies and debunks the myths around engaging with patients in medical device development. We've heard from industry members that they were concerned that FDA would be concerned, and we are writing a guidance to say we encourage you to do it as appropriate, engage with patients, get their feedback, develop more quality trials that match and measure what they care about. So that's one of our major efforts this year. Another mechanism that we've established to help our staff members engage with patients is the patient and caregiver connection. This was established in 2018, and this is an effort for, at the time of the medical device review, that they could get input from patients in a systematic way that can inform their evaluation of a novel device. In fact, there are things that we don't always consider. Um, A lot of our staff are engineers or chemists or toxicologists and maybe haven't met a patient that lives with that condition. And being able to get that feedback as they're reviewing the submission at the time of the decision is very critical. So we've operationalized that, and we've got about five or six organizations already signed up. And if you're interested, we encourage you to reach out to us and let us know. We'd we'd love to have you as part of our uh, network. The other effort that we've worked on, as you've already heard, we work collaboratively together internally and externally with research partners. We have worked on ensuring that the patient perspective is encouraged um, to be integrated from the design and ideation phase of a medical device, the prototype development, the clinical study, and the medical device surveillance, so across the total product life cycle. And when we see gaps, when we see research needs, we collaborate with institutions across the country to help fill those needs so that we have worked on methodologic advancement in ways that we can use it in our regulatory efforts. The last thing I'd like to mention is that FDA alone is not the solution. We are part of the larger ecosystem. We're one cog, and we want to work with all the other relevant uh, partners. So one of our strategic priorities this year is collaborative communities. We recognize that it's only when we sit together at the table with patients and providers and payers and hospital networks and regulators and industry That's when we come up with comprehensive solutions to shared challenges, where we can leverage opportunities to move the ball forward and meet the needs appropriately for all the stakeholders in the community. So if you have any questions about those efforts, please reach out to us in terms of meetings if you'd like to talk with us further. If you're interested in our patient preference information or uh, PRO development, please reach out to us about that at the mailboxes listed there. And if you're interested in collaborative communities, please let us know we are not establishing them. We want the community to establish them, but we'd love to participate if it meets one of our regulatory needs as well. So with that, I will pass the microphone on to Pegita.
1: Thanks, Michelle. And uh, you've already heard from Pujita, so I'm not going to introduce her anymore. And she might have a few more things to add from what you heard earlier, and then um, we'll dive right into the Q&A. Great.
3: Thank you, Annie. Um, as Annie mentioned, you know, I won't, I won't belabor this, but, um, you know, I talked about some of the guidance work that we're doing at Cedar and across, actually, because all three centers are involved in the guidance development work that we're doing, um, the standard CoA um, grant program that we recently launched that is really aimed to figure out. It's supposed to be a multi-stakeholder collaboration, so really trying to figure out, well, how do we move that forward? But along with that, um, I mentioned the disease-specific FDA-led meetings. Um, it, it was a PADUFA 5 commitment, but it is something that we are continuing on internally. Um, so if there are disease areas that are identified where there is truly pressing urgent need, um, then we will go ahead and have those FDA-led meetings as well. It is kind of sort of on an ad hoc basis. Last year we had two, and it is really, was in support of getting more information on the opioids crisis. So we had one on opioid use disorder, and the other was on chronic pain. So those are still um, going along. As Megan mentioned we have the externally led patient focused drug development meetings and it is an opportunity for you know For us sort of passing the baton and having external group external stakeholders take charge and follow the FDA model To conduct these meetings even for those although you know Cedar has kind of con is started this effort we actually work Um, across our centers. So there are requests that we get sometimes that are more um, biologics related or even device related for these externally led meetings. So then we work closely with our internal colleagues to put them in touch with um, the organizers. So that's kind of how that has worked. I also want to mention the external resources and information related to patient experiences website that we launched in January 2018. One thing that we heard from a lot of Folks, our external stakeholders, is that there needs to be some kind of one stop one stop shop for them to go to, to find some of a lot of these resources that are um, that FDA is putting out, but also the external groups. So let's, for example, let's say the external reports, the summary reports that are coming out of these externally led patient focused meetings, having a place for that, or any other type of patient experience data that folks would like to share with us to put on our website depending on um, what it is um, and if it meets one of the categories that we have. Just putting that out there, um, linking to those resources so that it is more accessible and publicly available um, to our FDA colleagues as well as other external stakeholders. So that's also another um, critical thing that we started. And at the end of the day, all of this is really to think about, well, how can we, successfully integrate the patient perspective and patient input into our overall drug development programs and regulatory decision making. And as you've heard from our CBER and CDRH colleagues, I would say for all of us, it's really to figure out, well, how do we foster a better relationship? And at the end of the day, how can that input really truly inform our regulatory decision making? And we, we do work across centers to really sit down. We have monthly meetings to sit down and strategize, share our experiences, lessons learned, um, and discuss other future opportunities for our You know, although we regulate different medical products, how can we work together in certain areas and to advance this field? Um, so really working collaboratively on that. So with that, I will turn it over to Annie.
1: Great. Uh, well, people, if you want to start lining up at the microphones for any questions, and uh, clearly, Yay! all right, I don't. I might not even have to use my list. Uh, all right. Go, ba- hi Barry. Hi. Oh, and I will say one thing. Sorry, before we um, open it up for questions, so we gave you a lot of the points of context to really be able to go directly to the centers um, when you know, you know, what it is that you're looking for and who to contact, and of course, and if you don't know. to go to or where to go there is of course the patient affairs staff at the agency level has created a web portal and they can help connect when you don't know but we really want to try to facilitate that local engagement because that's really where you know it's going to be the most beneficial and ideally even from our ends if you go straight to even your contacts in the review division that's really where you're going to get the most bang for the buck so we're really here to sort of facilitate so that was sort of our rationale for having all those points of (laughs) contacts so we gave you plenty of options and go ahead
4: Thanks, great talk, really appreciate it. Barry Lydon with Edwards Life Sciences Medical Device Company. I gotta say, FDA, this is embarrassing. You guys are so amazing, like everything, seriously, the most (laughs) patient-centric agency and organization, literally in the world, I mean, I'm not kidding, we work with a lot of different agencies around the world, FDA is now really shining as a bright spot in our overall community, is really setting the example. My only question is what, I mean it sounds like you've got some great programs, a lot of great stuff going on. What can we do to make this happen? Like what, you know, how do we make this so that, you know, really truly patient perspectives are being included in the regulatory decision making process. Sounds like you've set up some amazing frameworks for us to work within it. What, What do we do next?
2: So I think one of the things that the patient communities can do is you saw the types of information we're looking for, patient-reported outcome measures. You all know what's most important to you, and we encourage you to come talk to us. If that's something, if you see a gap in what we're measuring and that there's something that's unique to your experience that we're not capturing, come talk to us. Let's work together to help create a tool that does measure what's important to you. The other thing is patient preference studies. We, we've already talked about the fact that benefits and risks are traded differently with patients, and how can, we, how can we design a study that shows that? And I think that if we work together, and we always encourage people to come to us early and often so that you don't spend a lot of time and resources going down a path that doesn't lead to where you want it to go. Um, and we're happy to give input and give feedback so that you can design something that's useful. And then the last thing I, I will say is that the collaborative... We've talked about how much we collaborate internally. We've talked about how much we collaborate externally. We encourage you all to collaborate together externally so that we can also be a part of that. I think through those shared learnings, we can make great advances.
5: Hi, I'm Anna Bataglia from um, Allergan. We've been working a lot on uh, obtaining patient insights. Many, many times the patient insights are we don't want placebo. We can't go into a study because of placebo. We don't want placebo. Also, too many invasive procedures. Okay? So we want to bring them back to the FDA, but it seems that there's very little wiggle room for change for some of the designs and some of the diseases and indications. I just want to hear your thoughts on that, because, you know, that's what we're hearing from the patients. Um, that's it.
2: Thank you. So, so I'll, I'll, I'll make a general comment then. <laughs> I think that, you know, obviously we want science that's robust, that can we can trust the results. And so in some spaces, there's a need for a placebo. That's the only way you really can figure out the true impact. But we are exploring the use of real-world data. I mean, both our center and the Center for Drugs, I know, are actively working on how we can incorporate real-world data to help inform and fill in that gap, use it as a potential control, maybe use it um, as a performance measure standard so that we can develop that stuff. So we are exploring alternative approaches. But you're right, we've got some ways to go.
3: Um, I just want to add to that... I think it's also thinking about, you know, we have these new, we have, we're have we talking about and thinking about adaptive clinical trial designs, um, complex innovative designs, so really think about, well, what can we do? How do we bring in Bayesian methods and other methods that are out there so that we can adapt, um, kind of tweak be a little more flexible with the clinical trials itself? So I think that's also an opportunity in thinking about, you know, how can, how can we truly meet the patients? needs themselves so yeah.
1: Um, Hi Uh, I'm Samantha Gottlieb I'm a medical anthropologist can you hear me sorry Um, I just wanted to follow up with the first comment and then Vegeta's point about sort of communicating to patients and I mean I haven't looked at your patient's side for maybe a month or two but my last experience of it was that it's very um, it's not very accessible right that trying to synthesize how do patients know where to go who do they communicate with you know that all of the different um, advisory committees and things that you guys have put together are amazing, but you have to have a certain level of savvy about like what does this mean and some of the language, even like what is a patient engagement, what does that mean? These are very, um, like from the FDA perspective, like I, I deal with NSF for grants and things and all of their stuff comes to me as from their side, I have no idea what they're talking about. And I think that's sort of a similar problem is that that communication that it needs to be accessible, people with healthcare issues don't come to it necessarily from. Uh, more of the clinical side. So I just wanted to make that comment. Thanks. I think we all recognize the FDA website is not the easiest uh, to search. So, um, but, you know, we welcome feedback if there are ways, um, especially from patients and other stakeholders, that you would suggest how can we make the information more digestible. We are open to hear that and what can we do. And, again, that's sort of part of this whole collaborative effort. We need to understand what, are, what can we help do to help facilitate.
3: Um, and with that, I think also remembering that there's only so much we can do, unfortunately, with you know our own restrictions and guidelines of how we can put stuff up on our website, and that makes it very challenging. But point noted, um, we we recognize. I mean, I I go to Google first before I even <laughs> try to find anything on our FT site. So <laughs> um, point point well taken, and we'll figure try to figure something out.
4: I also just want to commend the agency for um, as the m- progress that you've made at, since the 21st Century Cares Act was passed. You guys have been moving at lightning speed, and I recognize you, know, you were doing a lot of work y- even before that. Um, I have a qu- two questions. Hopefully, they'll be quick. Um, The first is around patient preference studies, so I noticed that both CBER and CDRH had email addresses, um, you know, to contact about um, patient preference studies and and CEDAR doesn't. I'm just wondering, is there any philosophical difference in how how CEDAR views patient preference studies or um, are, are you approaching it differently
3: than the other divisions? Um, thank you for the question. So I'll say we don't explicitly call out patient preference information or studies itself. However, um, we are starting to see patient preference information being submitted as part of applications itself for our for our drug applications, So will say. Um, specifically, we don't have we're focusing right now on trying to figure out get these four methodological guidances out, which is really going from collecting patient input and focusing more on COAs at the moment mm-hmm. and getting to the end point. Um, it, that being said, we, it doesn't mean that we don't think that patient preference information and the tra- this tr- kind of the trade off, benefit risk trade offs, is not important. It is something that we are internally definitely having more discussions on. However, if folks, if external stakeholders are interested and would like to further discuss the opportunities for that, there are actually a few ways that um, you, we can go about doing that. You can contact the patient-focused inbox, let, and we, we will then route and try to figure out, you know, how can we get a group together to sit down and discuss, um, get the review divisions involved. We have done that for various, um, several groups that are doing conducting various types of patient preference studies. Um, there's also the critical path innovation meetings route. Um, it's called CPIMS, the short mm-hmm. form for it and that's where you, can, where you can bring patient stakeholders, industry researchers together in the pre-competitive states to come and talk about sort of the methodological issues or technological issues, let's say in general, then that's another opportunity if folks would like to come in and talk to CEDAR specifically, and that's also cross-centered so we can bring in our other CBER and CDRH colleagues as well into that conversation but to have that kind of open initial dialogue. But I think it really comes back to a point that um, Michelle mentioned, early engagement. If, if there's an idea or you, you have thoughts about doing it, just come in and talk to us. Let's have a discussion back and forth with, we'll get the right people in the room and figure out what the next steps are to really move forward. So we are exploring it, so that being said, you know, but we don't have a dedicated patient preference staff, let's say, focusing mm-hmm. on it. Um, I'll be very honest, we're, we're limited on resources. Right now for patient-focused drug development, overall for Cedar, it's just myself and two other people. So, yeah. <laughs> but yes, thank you.
1: And I will add, I think part of, part of that, too, is why you saw CDRH and CBER as a construct of our regulatory frameworks and our legal frameworks. So the guidance on patient preferences is for devices and mm-hmm. Center for Biologics does have some medical devices under it, so that's why you would see some of those contacts. Okay. Thanks that. For so it's for sort that of a construct of our regulatory frameworks.
4: And maybe it's too early now to answer this, but I know there was a lot of feedback um, at the workshop in the fall to discuss guidance two and three and, and as well in the public docket um, to include patient preference um, studies in those guidance documents. And I wondered if, um, you know, that's going to be added in, in the draft when it's released, or is it too early to say?
3: Um, I'll be honest. It's, it's too early to say. However, we are, we are reviewing. We have gone through the, um, all of the comments that are there. So it's really internally for us to try to figure out where it would be best to... Um, address that and talk about further you know, opportunities in that space. So it could be in the four me- methodological guidances. Um, we do have a benefit-risk guidance that we're going to put out um, as well. Under cures we have a list of guidances and that's number eight, I believe, and under 3002 um, in 21st century cures and that is on kind of thinking about benefit-risk and how to incorporate patient experience data throughout the benefit-risk life cycle as well. So it may be there as well. Um, I can't say exactly where it'll be, but we we point noted and we will definitely um, try to figure this out. Thank you.
2: And just to chime in with that, um, we do have um, patient preference called explicitly in our benefit-risk guidance documents. We've got about three or four of them about the uh, pre-market as well as the post-market. And so we do call out patient preference information as part of that consideration in the benefit-risk (laughs) decision-making process.
5: Uh, hi, I'm Ellen Sonnet from Cancer Care. Um, our, our social workers, our oncology social workers, speak to between 1,000 and 1,500 patients and care partners a week. Um, 60% of them are calling us for financial assistance. These aren't the folks that are typically on your advisory boards and at your meetings, um, on the panels, but they are also the voice of patients. And how can we work together to make sure that patient preference data and patient voices reflect the diversity of the population that has these diseases?
2: So uh, we completely agree. I mean, diversity is something that we encourage. Uh, we have a bunch of guidances that have come out from our center about age race and ethnicity and importance of of categorizing that with respect to the, the um, device evaluation. One of the things that we've talked about um, at our peak meetings is that there is an open public hearing session where anyone can provide comments written, videotaped, and we will read them into the record, and they will be considered by the committee in the discussion. So that's one mechanism. We also have, we encourage patient organizations that do tap into the, that community to work with us. So reach out to us so that you can be the conduit to reach those kinds of patients that we don't necessarily have easy access to. Um, So we do want to include those voices, and we appreciate any help you can give.
5: Well, 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 this is kind of a shameful question, but do you have any resources that um, are available to help us aggregate the data and provide it to you in a format that works for you?
2: So. So I I think you're talking financial resources. (laughs) So I I would say that it just depends on the research question. I mean, I think that if there's an idea that you have that fits within our regulatory science uh, framework, that we do consider uh, research proposals from all groups.
3: And I I just want to mention one thing. I think this is FDA-wide, BAA's broad agency announcements. We do have that where um, we've laid out kind of the strategic priority areas for... Um, I don't know if it's I can't remember if it's center specific or' if it's, it's, it's agency specific. yeah I think it's agency specific so if you actually go in through there and identify and really get uh, figure out what that research question is um there is there may be an opportunity through that um, route as well to r- r- try to fun- get some funding to fund your work so yes there there are opportunities and resources I think it's just figure out um, how to how to get there. Hi, you're Miguel Maya, head of external patient affairs at Roche in the headquarters in Switzerland. So my question is, how do you work together with other agencies like, for example, the
5: EMA, yeah, that has established the patient con- and consumers working party already 13 years ago and has a broad experience in bringing in the patient voice into regulatory
3: um, into the regulatory work, and other initiatives like IMI, Innovative Medicines Initiative, which is the largest public-private partnership in the biopharmaceutical industry, working, for example, also on a project like IMI Prefer, which is around
5: patient preference. Thank you.
0: So CBER and I believe, I think all, all yep, are, are involved in the, the Prefer and um, some of the IMI projects. Um, and, and absolutely. I mean, we do want to work closely with our international partners um, And so you know we have different mechanisms for, for doing that. Not only we have confidential meetings with, with the different agencies um, where we can actually talk specifically about different applications, different products, but then we have these more public forums like the ICH, like the IMI, um, so, but but thank you for raising that because it's important on many, many levels. And I just want
3: to mention that FDA does that, FDA, EMA has a patient engagement cluster itself, which, um, so I believe it's held every, on a quarterly basis, mm. where um, FDA and EMA patient engagement does get together and share share information. Have Excellent.
1: Thank you. Thanks, and
2: we'll go over there. Uh, thanks. My lucky day, I never picked the shorter line. Um, uh, Sanjay Sethi, I'm uh, at University at Buffalo. I'm a physician scientist. Uh, so the question I have is, and I've had some experiences with PROs and FTAs uh, and FTA. Uh, so the question I have is, what is there a strategy as to when? Will happen that your PRO outcomes will differ from your physiological outcomes or your standard outcomes that you've had in a disease state. So, is there a strategy as to how you will deal with that? Because that's going to happen. It's already happened in the case of COPD, but I was involved in outcomes. So, I'm an ophthalmologist by training, and in our space, we already see that we see a disconnect between the signs of dry eyes and the PRO-reported symptoms that patients have with dry eyes. So we look at we look to professional organizations to help us with that as well. You know they come up they have their own committee. They came up with criteria for how they classify drives, and we consider those things when we look at it in the regulatory space. Something very similar may be uh, occurring in your space, and so we encourage you to work with your provider community because we do want it to make sure that it's relevant, but it's taken in the appropriate context, and we are not saying that we're the only source of a decision. We're the source of a regulatory decision. But there are other clinical decisions that we do weigh, and so all those pieces of information can better inform the disease space.
4: Hi, Elise Felicioni from Janssen on sabbatical with Scripps Research. I have a question about, you had mentioned patient preferences would apply, and rightfully so, we're discussing at the very early stages, such as in the translational stage. But... For a lot of medications that were developed and marketed before the era of patient engagement, those factors maybe have have been understudied. And I'm thinking about a lot of classes of medications that many, many patients take for diseases that are very prevalent, such as diabetes and cardiovascular diseases. Um, and, and adherence to those medications is very, quite suboptimal, in fact, around 50%. Can you speak a little bit more about what you're, what, what you're thinking about for the post-market space?
2: So I'll talk a little bit about diabetes. We have um, used qualitative patient preference information to help inform the CGM, uh, c- uh, continuous glucose monitoring um, efforts, because... And Annie probably can give a better story about this, but... Um, you know, there was some concerns about the alarms that were happening and that children may... um, uh have hypoglycemic episodes, and that that qualitative preference, that they'd rather have some alteration to the alarm system so that they they don't have to worry about the safety of their children, that information was taken into account, and the device was modified. So there are a lot of ways in in the post-market arena that patient preference information can inform. Um, Devices, by their very nature, are iterative. They change, and so we take that input, and we be and, and many companies have been very open to modifying their devices based on that information. Um, in terms of drugs, I, I would turn it over to Vegeta, but um, three seconds. Three seconds. Well I guess not. I won't turn it over to Vegeta.
1: <laughs> uh, well I believe it's break time. Um, but we are we're fine with staying on a couple more minutes. So I'll leave I don't know Okay.
0: Have... Like okay.
1: a quick question, quick answer,
0: and then we okay. break. Birgit Roy, Director of Advocacy at Myocardia. Thank you very much for this very informative session. Quick question is you mentioned the collaborative communities in SIBER. Do
5: you have a similar construct in CDR as well as um, how does that how does a collaborative community get formed? Is it initiated by a, a particular party or do you initiate it?
2: So collaborative communities is out as a strategic priority of CDRH. Um, And it is not, we don't establish, we don't form them, we participate as a member. We are encouraging the external community to form them. And we're already seeing in a lot of spaces people saying this is an issue um, and we need to work together um, in identifying important stakeholders to start having that conversation. So we have a draft toolkit that's posted on our website um, if you do CDRH collaborative communities, you'll see a whole page that talks about the strategic priority. You'll, it'll show you the toolkit and um, give you some information about that effort.
1: And thank feel you. free to bother Michelle during the break. You can, uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and uh, my emails I don't mean there. bother, <laughs> and I mean feel free to chat with Michelle during the break yes, if you have I'm more sorry, questions. I'm, I meant
5: CDRH. Thank you
1: very much. And, and one more quick question. Hi, thank you for me to graduate our pulse info frame. A question about real-world evidence, because you noted it earlier in your discussion, and I want to follow up on um, my colleague's question from the EMA. So essentially, um, you know, the EMA over the last two years has actually been assessing the quality of real-world data coming from patient registries, and given the announcement that Dr. Gottlieb made in December of last year, I'm wondering what steps you've put in place to start to harmonize, because in rare disease, rare cancers, you need to pull data from around the world there have to be standards in terms of applying them to real-world data because you can't do RCTs. So that, maybe that wasn't a quick question. But we know, we're, we're working on it. Yeah.
0: That's the quick answer.
5: That's a quick answer.
0: We hope you enjoyed the discussion. For more information, visit theconferenceforum.org. Thanks for listening.